Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about going pro in the game design industry. We're talking about starting your own publishing company uh, going beyond just a designer or just creating games, but actually going into the business world. We're talking to uh, the the founder of Plaid Hat Games, Mr. Colby Doubt. Colby, really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for having me. Now, you're a guy that started a business way back when. When did uh, when did Plaid Hat really get going? When did you when did you file the paperwork, so to speak? Uh, May twelfth, two thousand nine, was when the when the paperwork is officially recognized. Excellent. So you've been doing this for a while. You know, Plat Hat has created some of the best games out there right now. Dead of Winter, City of Remnants was really good. Summoner Wars was huge. I mean, you've uh, Mice and Mystics. I was talking to Jerry Hawthorne the other day about Mice and Mystics. You guys have created some incredible games. Have become a really great company. But let's talk about what all went into that. So give me some background on you, how you first got started in gaming, and then what led to you wanting to start your own company. I got started in gaming uh, with HeroScape. That was like a game that reached me where I was at, uh, partially on account because it was it was done by Hasbro, and so it was presented to the mass market because I had no idea about hobby market games at the time. I was just rural, and and nobody in the area was doing anything with them, so I just didn't know about them. Uh, but HeroScape led me to go to Gen Con to get the exclusive, uh, and which led me to discover the world of hobby board games and that was kind of how I got into to games as a fan and then I was such a fan of HeroScape that I ended up running developing and running the fan website and ended up becoming a play tester and play testing led to writing and writing led to game design and uh, and then you know that was my start professionally as a game designer working uh, as a freelancer for Hasbro. Gotcha. So then where did the idea for Summoner Wars come? Now, did Summoner Wars come before the idea to start your own company, or did you want to start your own company first? I just had inklings of maybe my own company someday. Uh, Summoner Wars definitely came first. Summoner Wars was kind of the result of, okay, well, I'm building games based on other people's ideas or based on some structure. I'm writing powers for somebody else's game. I should really take a crack at, at making my own game. And, uh, and Summoner Wars was born out of that. Uh, and, and kind of when I was building it and it was going well and I was getting good feedback on it, I just kind of made the decision that I was going to shop it to a couple of the big biggest companies. And if I didn't hear back from them, or they turned it down, then I would go ahead and take a shot at publishing it myself. Because at the time, I felt like there was only a couple of big players in in uh, kind of American-style board games. Gotcha. So you originally shopped it around to publishers. Did you get any feedback? Did they tell you, like, did they even give you yes or no, or just not even get back to you? Well, I had a connection at Hasbro, so that was one of uh, the places I thought you know, if they like it for wizards, uh, that that might be something. Um, but they were very much like, you know, we're going to stick to 
Wizards tends to stick to its brands and reinforcing its brands. Um, and then, and yeah, and for Hasbro, it was just kind of, it was, it was the kind of thing where they just didn't feel like it, it worked as a mass market game and, and they didn't think Wizards would be interested. So uh, they, they didn't take it in. They, they turned it down. And, and then I tried to shop it to Fantasy Flight, but I was just going in cold and sent it to um, their evaluator and, and it, it got it got lost in an inbox or a pile of prototypes that I'm all too familiar with now at this point. Absolutely. So so at the time, you know, you've got a game and Summer Warriors is a great game, but did you really know how good it was? Like were you aware that it was gonna take off the way it did or or were you still kinda unsure about it? I think there's two parts of uh, when people are are doing something big. There's the part that feels like, oh yeah, this is awesome. I'm really happy about this. I'm really confident in this, and and they're dreaming huge. Like everything's going to be the best. And then there's the other part that's like, I'm putting myself out there for the first time in a really big way, and I'm very scared. And that person's not so confident. So it tends to be an internal war between those kind of two aspects of my personality back then. Gotcha. Because, I mean, it's a game that went on to be one of Tom Vassell's favorite of all times. A lot of people uh, say it's one of the greatest of all times. But at the time, you you had this game and this idea that that traditional publishers weren't signing, and so you had to really, in your head, make that decision, okay, I'm going to do it myself. So walk me through the process of making that decision and what you did, because you didn't go the Kickstarter route, which most people do. You went a totally different route. So help me understand kind of your thought process in in doing that and then what that looked like. Well, the time Kickstarter was brand, brand new, and it wasn't by any means the no-brainer route to go. Uh, It might have been that a couple had gone that route, uh, I didn't really start to learn about it until it was time for me to do some expansions. Um, it wasn't until then that I made an active decision not to go that route. But at the at the time of first publication, uh, those two Summer Wars starter sets, uh, there was not. Um, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't just a common thing that everybody was doing. Uh, I don't even know if I knew about it at the time. So that kind of informed where I was going with it as far as, as Kickstarter goes. Uh, the idea to publish on my own and start a game company, it was really something like, I want to do games full-time eventually, uh, and if I, if, if I were to start a game company, maybe that's an avenue to, to get to a point where I can occupy myself full-time with games. And I felt really good about the game because I had shown it to a pool of my friends from... Uh, from you know that I had gathered because of work on Heroescape, uh, and it was just a big hit with them. I knew I really liked it, and I felt like I had a voice to those Heroescape uh, fans. Heroescape had just died, um, and and so yeah, I thought if this is successful, it's an expandable game, and so. I can work out expansions and and have kind of a tail on it that could support a you know the birthing of a company. Gotcha. And one of the biggest things it sounds like you did at the beginning was you had a community. You had a group of people already on board that that trusted you, that really liked your game. So before your game was even a real quote unquote thing, 
you had a group of people there kind of waiting on it. Is that right? Yeah. The group that I had that you could say was waiting on it would be pretty small, but the group who I had an audience with, uh, heroes fans was, was quite, quite a bit larger. So, uh, so yeah, it wasn't so much the HeroScape fans were like actively waiting on it, but once it was out, I had this audience that I could, uh, you know, speak to, and 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 fortunately they gave it, they gave it a try. Gotcha. You know, one thing I've talked about in the past is knowing your customer avatar, <clears throat> so to speak, like knowing exactly what that person enjoys, what they like, you know, the communities that they're hanging out in, and so you had already tapped into that. You knew you knew your person, and then you built a game that that those people really really enjoyed. Right, but that was like the very, very beginning of the bell curve of what would become like Seminar Wars Tales of Fandom. Uh, ultimately, it took somebody like Tom Vassell giving it a really excellent review and Shut Up and Sit Down giving it a good review and, uh, and, and just getting it out there to reviewers to talk about hitting the convention circuit, putting myself out there, and just getting it in enough hands to let word of mouth take over. Gotcha. Well, let's talk about risk a little bit. Talking about getting, you know, putting yourself out there. So, starting a game company, starting any company, is a risk. It's a huge risk, especially if there's a lot of cost involved. And with games, I mean, it's a pretty decent cost. So, so help me, help me understand your your mental processing of all right. I'm going to take this risk. I'm going to put this money on the line. Uh, how did you structure some different things? So, so if we're talking to somebody who's really thinking about starting their own company, kind of give some insight on what that looks like from the ground level at the beginning. Uh, well, at the time, uh, I funded about half the project myself and half through friends and family that I had just made out some some real basic contracts that said, in this amount of time, I'll pay you your money plus this back uh, as, as these games sell, like giving you this much money for each game sold. Uh, so it, it was... It wasn't at the level of Kickstarter, but it wasn't like completely on my own. Uh, if I had funded it all on my own, I think I would have felt a lot less nervous. Mm-hmm. Like, taking anybody else's money into my hands, like that's part of what like steered me away from Kickstarter. Like, uh, I, I just couldn't imagine like something outside of my control happening, and I had already taken somebody's money and couldn't couldn't get it back to them or couldn't get them the project product or they weren't happy with the product in the end. So. So that was the most nerve-wracking was was borrowing any money for it, um, and the money that I put up was a result of of having done freelance work for Hasbro. So it was work that I was doing above and beyond my day job, and I was just putting a good chunk of it away, and um, and then you know utilized it for that endeavor. Absolutely, I think having the the added pressure of of paying it back. Of of you know having these people that are investors, so to speak, I think honestly that could be a really really good catalyst. One of the issues with Kickstarter is you know people realize or they should realize that they're putting money towards something that might never happen. You know they're basically potentially throwing their money away if that designer or the creator or whatever uh, walks away from the project or if it doesn't ever work out. Uh, you know you can't really get your money back and you don't really ever get uh, what you're owed. Sometimes you know there's been some game projects that just never really came to fruition. But having that well, pressure, you know, I think that's why you've seen Kickstarter decline a bit, mm-hmm. and I think that that's also why certain Kickstarters do really well. And I think people have learned to uh, look for a reason to trust the Kickstarter maker, and 
and yeah, and so like I feel like I feel like there are reputable people out there, and as a reputable person, like I'm horrified at the idea of not coming through for somebody. Yeah. So, so you know, people learn to back those projects where there's some reputation there. Absolutely. If you were starting a company today, would you do it the way you did it, or would you go through Kickstarter? If I was starting a company right now, it would depend on the the project that I was launching with. Uh, with like my current knowledge base, I might do like a big flashy fancy game with lots of cool toy like miniatures and Kickstarter it. If I were doing something that was uh, a little more attainable, then then I wouldn't. I don't think I would turn to Kickstarter, and I wouldn't have because I wouldn't have like. I don't know that I could get noticed in that space. I think if if you're relying on the game's mechanics to get you noticed, you have to get the game out to people. And Kickstarter is so prevalent that most most reputable reviewers won't even review a Kickstarter project in early stages. So let's talk about your early challenges and obstacles in your, your plaid hat uh, journey. What were some of the things you had to just run into, the roadblocks you found, and then the ways you overcame those things? Uh well, a lack of knowledge. Like I had some knowledge in that I was tangentially connected to board game publishing having freelanced, but a lot of it was just learning as I went, thinking up solutions to problems as they presented themselves, earning relationships and being able to talk to them about uh, how they've done it uh, and, and just share information. Uh, so, so a lot, I mean... A lot of things are just learning as you go. How do you distribute a project? How do you, product? How do you get uh, distributors interested? How do you get retailers interested? How do you communicate with your customer? Uh, how do you uh, report your financials to the government? What should a game cost? Uh, what you know is my printer overcharging me? Uh, you know how did uh, all sorts of stuff that you just kind of learn as you go. But as far as like major barriers or lessons learned that I think have value, uh, for me it was production value became a very important thing um, for us as a company. Uh, just really wanting to produce a product that we could be proud of and that would be noticed in a crowd. Uh, and really the value of like the value of co-contributors but also the value of um, really having somebody setting a direction for those co-contributors. I think at first there was a lot of like, oh, you do this, and because you do this, like, I just need to get out of the way and let you do what you do. But kind of without a central vision holder and standard holder, uh, you know, some things can get lost in the mix. Not everybody's going to have the same passion for your baby as you do. So it's a, it's a matter of knowing when to micromanage and when to, and, and when to like get in there and, and, and drive home the vision, uh, and when to let creators create. Gotcha. And so what you're talking about right now, it's really a lot to do with management. More than creativity, more than design, it's about management and leadership and those kind of things. And I feel like that's something a lot of people don't understand when they're starting a business or even starting doing a Kickstarter, which is a business, if we're being honest, you're, you're starting a business. They don't understand how important the management and leadership aspects really are. Yeah, I would say, like, you could be a really good game designer. And if that's the case, you should really be submitting your game design 
to a publisher mm-hmm. and, and doing the work to get the game published because that publisher is going to have a huge knowledge base and, and resources and know-how uh, and, and then a team with, with the skills to take a game through the process. Um, when you're starting a company and launching a company to produce your game, you don't have any of that and you're learning it as you go and you end up becoming a manager and is that what you wanted and is that where your skill set lies? Yeah, absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about your time, especially early on, like how much time you had to spend working with distributors, working on the fulfillment of things, working on artists and paying artists and paying freelancers and all that compared to how much time you actually got to spend designing games and doing the fun part. It's hard. I don't have like exact numbers, but I could tell you it's uh, far and away more management. Like the designing the game was, it, it happened a lot before I started the company. I had a number of factions, and then once once you get going, there there are some like designing and refining factions and leading the play testers. But very quickly, uh, all of all of that work ends up starting to get. Um, delegated in some form or another bring on a lead play tester have somebody uh directing that team uh and it's a matter of like well art needs to be done so you're talking to an artist and and they're kind of managing themselves early on um now i have you know isaac doing the art direction uh so the more it just seems like management continues to be central to the business as the business grows. And so whoever the driver of the company is, in this case it was me, you know, ends up delegating more and more of the other stuff and and becomes more and more of a manager. Uh, At least that's how it functioned for me and grew for me. I feel like if I would have felt like I needed to be central to every game like it needed to be born with me and i was central to all the creative processes of the game i don't know that i could have made the company flow at that point yeah absolutely was it unexpected how much time you had to devote to the management aspect of things yeah definitely like i went in it i think with maybe my eyes open more open than other people like i knew that i had leadership skills i knew that i had management skills i knew that i was interested in those sides of things uh but but yeah i mean even then it's overwhelming like especially the more success you have and the more a thing grows you know it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger each time and and so you're getting new surprises uh with each level of growth. Absolutely. Now, did you find any resources or books or things that really helped you in that management uh, aspect or the leadership things or anything like that that you could share with people? Uh, I don't think I turned to any, uh, I don't think I turned to any like specific books or resources. I think a lot of it was self-collected, like talking to players of the game. Um, you know, gathering a community, being in touch with them, um, both a community on like the fan side, fans of the game, and being in touch and figuring out what they wanted, and then developing a community on the professional side. Uh, I worked with uh, PSI, Publisher Services Inc., um, for a long time from the beginning, all the way up until I sold. Uh, and and they took care of of a number of elements and. 
had a number of people that I could talk to about different aspects and then just going around to the shows, um, becoming friends with other publishers. And then I might have made an endeavor into like licensing or, or something like that, that uh, Steve Bonacore hasn't. And so Steve might come and talk to me about that. And, and Steve may have made a venture into uh, trying an alternate method of fulfillment that I haven't tried, and I can go and, and talk to him about that. And there's also like a lot of veterans in the industry who are willing to to talk to you. Uh, you know, if you like humbly and respectfully approach them and, and ask questions, somebody helped them get to where they are. And, and the good ones remember that and are willing to pay that forward to the, to the next person who's trying to, to get somewhere. Um, ultimately like people don't have time to answer everybody's questions completely cold and blind but if you're part of a group if you're already out there doing it you end up meeting these people and end up having these conversations yeah absolutely i've found so many people in this industry to be so generous and just so caring and kind and you know most industry uh, industries, your competitors, you're competing against people, so you don't want them to know other ways to do fulfillment or other ways to do distribution, you know, whatever it is. But in this industry, everybody is, for the most part, uh, very open and trying to help each other win. Because the more the more one person wins, the more we all win. If we bring more people into the the hobby, then everybody is going to win from that. But it sounds like uh, not only should you build a community of players and people that you know like your games, and that way you can tap into them, but just build, building that village and that community of uh, other people in business, other people that are publishers, other people in that side of things is incredibly important uh, if you're going to be successful down the road. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like we small publishers had, had our own support group. Uh, we saw each other over and over again at the conventions, went out and had, you know, drinks, dinner together. And uh, and and yeah, it was it, it, it did feel like we were in this together. I think like I secretly wanted to be the most successful in the group, uh, but uh, not not like at the group's expense. I didn't feel like I needed somebody else's customers. Like I like we were directly competing for the same customer base. I think we were all, I think we all knew that, uh, and still know that there are plenty of people out there who would enjoy board games who aren't playing board games, uh, and and finding a solution to that is. You know, a lot of it, a lot of it's just word of mouth. A lot of it solves itself. But, um, but yeah, like that was the, that, that was the bigger fish was making board games more popular and more known to the populace. I mean, still like when I tell somebody that I make board games for a living, I, I mean, 90% of people, 99% of people hadn't, have no idea that board games are a thing that really like board games like on your table like physical board games <laughs> yeah they they assume that i mean something digital in some way right or that you make some version of monopoly right yeah just yeah. it's just it's just not a popular thing still despite the fact that inside of our ecosystem and our echo chamber it might seem popular because we hang out with a bunch of people who are really into it but yeah. uh it just isn't yeah absolutely I, I was i asked a few friends to come over uh, I guess this is a couple of weeks ago to play some games, and they're like, "Oh, like Telestrations? I love Telestrations." It's like, okay, we we got to all right, we got to open that horizon just a little bit to to do something a little more in depth than that. Uh, that's just the way it is. Yeah, my way of doing that is like I always, whenever, because I would get the question like, 
when when you say you make games like Monopoly, yep. Yeah. Like Risk, <laughs> yep. Like Dungeons and Dragons, yep. Like Magic the Gathering, yep. My answer is always yes. Uh-huh. Partly because it was simpler, and, and and partly because it just feels kind of, I don't know, it just always felt kind of like jerkish to me to be like, oh, well, actually, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, you don't absolutely. understand. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, if Friends had some touchstone, why not build off of it rather than like tear it down and be like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, like Telestrations, yeah, it, like Telestrations, like this, this is a, uh, or like apples to apples, yeah, like let me show you snake oil, right? So it's something they're familiar with, I think is more interesting. Uh, or, you know, like, like Telestrations, yeah, let me, let me show you, um, let me show you, uh, say anything. You know, and then and then oh, well, let me show you something else that people who like say anything like. Let me show you uh, code names, and you know a lot of people like code names. Like, and, and each each time, you know, I'm I'm varying their palette to where the point they're like, oh, I just like board games. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly the way to do it. I mean, I wonder how many people have been lost that could have been, you know, that could have gotten into the hobby, but got lost because of the condescending nature that somebody took with them. Uh, oh, you like, oh, Monopoly. Let me know. That's so stupid. And they kind of went down this rabbit trail about how awful Monopoly is and totally just uh, isolated that person outside of the group, so to speak, and made them feel like an outsider when they could have just said, oh, you like Monopoly. Let me show you this game that's kind of like Monopoly, uh, except it's different. And let's have some fun with that. Yeah, I've, I've put a lot of time into thinking about what the barriers are. You know, I said earlier about there are a lot of people out there that don't know about board games that could be playing board games and enjoying them. So I think a lot about what are the barriers? What are keeping those people from playing board games? And and there's all sorts of them. Uh, I mean, I, I could name off five or six, uh, but one of them for sure, I think, is the intimidation factor. And intimidation factor can be like rules, which is one barrier, uh, but it can also be, you know, like, oh, I'm at this convention or I'm in this group and I'm the new person and there's like, clearly they all have this experience and this touchstone that I don't and they're all, you know, they all feel like like they're apart from me. They're at this other level and this other understanding of this this thing and we only exacerbate that problem. That problem's going to exist no matter what because it's true. We do have this knowledge that they aren't that they don't and they are going to feel it they are going to feel like the dumbest person in the room when they're trying to learn the new rules and everybody else is picking it up and they're not because they don't have as many touchstones uh but it's exacerbated when you know you guffaw at their lack of knowledge about uh what a real connoisseur of board games is going to enjoy right right and it's sad but some people get a a sense of pride like they feel kind of they feel a little bit better than other people because they're in the know so to speak and a lot of times that manifests itself in a really ugly way that keeps people out of the industry keeps them out of the hobby you know and this is so important from both a publisher and a designer standpoint because the better you can understand those barriers of entry the more people you can bring into your games or into your uh, company or you know into your the games your company produces or publishes so the better we understand these things the better the hobby is going to be as a whole yeah i envision like there's there's the stereotypical I feel like there's two stereotypical versions of the hipster. And, and, and one hipster is the hipster 
that is snobbish about their thing. Like they're they're the connoisseur. They know what's good, and they they kind of have a sense of pride about it and a sense of of I'm informed, so I'm you know I'm level ninety nine. Uh, in, in this game and you're level one uh so and, and then there's the hipster uh like brian who used to be our our community manager who is very inclusive like they're just excited about the thing and um and and you see them light up when they talk about the thing and they're just excited to introduce you to the thing they don't use their knowledge as a as a way of setting themselves apart as somehow, um, you know, more venerable in the arena that you've entered into, uh, but rather just use it to, to stair step you into a thing that they're really excited about and want to share with you. Absolutely. You know, something Donald Miller talks about, uh, and this is more of a marketing thing, but I think it really applies here is to realize that you're not the hero of the story that other person is. And so you should become the guide and how can you guide them into whatever. So in this scenario, if you're a designer, you're, you know, I'm, I'm not the hero of my game, the, the people playing are. And so how can I guide them easily into these mechanics, into this experience? Or as a publisher, how can you guide customers into uh, the hobby or into the games that you're, you're putting out and realize that we, okay, we might have a lot of knowledge. We might've done all these wonderful things, but we're not the hero of the story that per other person is. And how can we guide them? Yeah. I mean, I think that we're all the heroes of our own story. Um, but if, if, I think that humanity has the tendency to uh, have the have tunnel vision and only see their own story and only yeah. see their their centralness in that story and and fail to uh, conceive of the fact that everybody has their own frame of reference. So everybody sees their story through their own frame where they're central. Um, and that that's not just a board games thing. That's a that's a life thing. I think we could all get along better and and uh, and and have a better time of uh, of life if we uh, if we could take to changing our perspective. No, I completely agree. Let's let's kind of keep talking about this barrier of entry thing from a from a design and a publishing standpoint. What are some of the things that you found that work? really well to to kind of get past some of these barriers of entry so if i'm going to you know start my own publishing company i need to be aware of these things what are what are some things i need to do well i don't i don't think that uh we do have good solutions to a number of them uh, unfortunately uh but um but we've tried nonetheless <laughs> so <laughs> like like i mentioned rules is one of the barriers and so things that I've tried and, and continue to do is have Rodney Smith teach the game via a video and continue yeah. to look at how we do that process and is there a way to improve that or, or shorten it or uh, other companies have had apps that help walk you through the game. Other companies have done uh, quick start rule books that help you uh, get started and try to reduce that barrier. Other companies um, create very, very simple games with very few rules to, to get more people in. Uh, and, and try to lower that barrier. Um, ultimately, it, I always look at video games as kind of the standard, right? So video games used to be a nerd thing. Now they're just a culturally accepted thing uh, that everybody does. Uh, right. and, and it's because they lowered all of their barriers. So like 
what are the rules to this game? Well, I can, it, it's on the screen and I just, I just fiddle around with my finger on it until I see something happen and then it starts to come together for me and, and they introduce concepts and steps and phases. They don't have to explain everything up front. Uh, you can just, you can just play with it and it comes together for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I love how in video games, you know, you spend the first 10 minutes, they're teaching you the game, but you're actually enjoying it. You're having fun. You're playing the game. You're learning these concepts one by one or two by two. But a lot of times with board games, it's okay, let's sit here and let's go through this 34 page rule book. And that's not fun. And no one's enjoying this. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot to learn from the video game world. Yeah. Well, and, and there is, but it's also difficult. Like, uh, no, because, right. because, it requires that somebody already knows that, right? And so somebody in the group has to know the game because ultimately the best way to learn a board game is to have somebody else teach you. Like, there's no doubt right. about that. And and the best, best way is to have somebody teach you that knows how to teach a board game well, not the person that's going to explain every single rule up front and, and bore you, uh, but the person that's going to, that's good at stair-stepping you in just like a, a video game does. Um, but ultimately it requires that somebody took the the very difficult reading comprehension test that is reading through rules and figuring out bringing all the rules together into how this game functions uh and i think that because we're in the hobby there's a there's quite a few of us who are good at that but that's not like an average skill that most people possess absolutely Hey, I tell you what. Let's um, let's let's talk about this more in the bonus round and the bonus material. Let's talk about more of the barriers to entry and some things that we can do as designers and publishers uh, to make those barriers a little easier okay. to get through. Sure. Um, and let's let's go back to the uh, the whole plaid hat. I'm actually I'm really excited now to talk about these barriers to entry. I mean, that's a whole new like mindset or things to be really aware of more than just do your mechanics work, does your theme work, but barriers of entry. So I'm really excited about talking that, about that. And uh, we'll get to that at the very end, but going back to plaid hat, like at the very beginning, what were the big, like make or break moments that you guys, or I guess you by yourself for a while that you really felt like, okay, this has to work. Otherwise the whole thing goes under or any, any moments like that? Well, every moment, <laughs> every <laughs> moments like that. That's like, oh, you know, we have to have enough to pay for it, and and then we're going to put it out on the market, and this has to sell in order for me to have money to do the next thing, and then that has to sell in order for me to have money to do the next thing, and so on. No, nothing can be dead stock in the in the very beginning. Um, it, it just can't. Like at least for me, it couldn't. I had an initial investment, and I had to make it work, uh, and, and so for a while. Uh, and I think that's everybody's story who kind of, except for the people, uh, there are people who have made it work by like the go and the Kickstarter game. And then they print based on the Kickstarter. And even if after the Kickstarter, it doesn't do so hot, they paid for it with the Kickstarter and they'll just go back to Kickstarter with the next game. Um, yeah. and, and that's a, that's a whole separate model that's worked. But for me and the model that I was taking, uh, I needed this thing to work to fund the next thing I was going to do. And, uh, and so everything was make and break for a while. Eventually, ideally you get to the point where you have enough successful games and, and maybe an evergreen game or two, uh, that you could have something turn into dead stock and it not sink your company. Yeah. Jamie Stegmar talked about how in that first Kickstarter he ran, uh, he got a little bit too out of hand with the stretch goals. And there was one stretch goal that was a big number. Um, but it was going to be metal coins. And so if, if they had hit that stretch goal, everybody would have gotten these metal coins with their game. And he said, 
thank goodness that they didn't hit that goal, that he ended up a few thousand dollars short of that. Because if he had hit that goal and had to send those coins and the shipping costs that would have gone along with the extra weight and all that, it would have sunk his company from the beginning and, and maybe not even, uh, he probably wouldn't even be able to have a company now. And so did you have any moments like that where, man, it could have really gone the other way? Like any, any specifics? Like, gosh, if that hadn't worked out the way it did, then this whole thing wouldn't have worked out at all. Uh, I can't think of any off of the top of my head. I know that there are those, there are those things in like Kickstarter where you're making a bunch of promises up front. And so you really have to count your costs. Uh, fortunately, like I, I think I had had, I had done enough research or enough talking to people through my connections through having been a freelancer that I had some idea of what margins needed to be to be successful and, and some things like that. Um, that I didn't wind up in a moment where I'd be making a promise that I couldn't fulfill on uh and i can't really think of any other comparable moments like there there's a lot of like i'm showing up at this convention and i hope that i don't lose money here i hope that i sell enough <laughs> games to break even maybe i could even make money um and so those those all felt like i don't think they were make or break but at the time they all felt make or break each time the tension. it felt like yeah like because because you're there are people gonna like it Am I going to get any attention? Because if I don't, like, I'm a failure at life. <laughs> and it hurts me. <laughs> <laughs> the, the creative person's journey right there, that struggle we all face as a creative. So, cool. let's talk about some of your biggest wins. You, know, you mentioned, you know, having your game reviewed early on was a big win that really helped to get the game out there. But what were some of the other things, you know, in the first couple of years of your company? Uh, I think signing uh, Mice and Mystics was a pretty big win that really uh, helped helped you out a lot. Now that's my perspective from the outside looking in, but what were some of the big wins that you had? Uh, I mean, yeah, anytime somebody like, uh, like Tom Vassell, uh, promotes your game to the level that he promoted seminar wars, like that's a huge win. He's got a, he's got a big voice and, and those things all have ripple effects. So he, the more people he tells, the more people there are that try it and tell somebody, uh, or just talk about it and, and, gets it on the hottest list or so I think watching it rise in the ranks of board game geek and especially in like the thematic or competitive ranks, uh, those all felt like big wins. Uh, getting a dice tower award felt huge. Um, and, and then like, and then each like Mice and Mystics was a big, it was a, was a much bigger success than Summoner Wars. And then Dead of Winter was a much bigger success than Mice and Mystics. And, and just kind of continuing to find out the bigger successes light out there. Each one felt like a huge win, felt like, oh my God, we can't even keep up with demand. Um, those all felt like big wins and wins that I wish like at the time I had done a better job of appreciating the significance of yeah. i feel like at the time i was just so focused on what's next that i, w I would discount the significance of any win because it wasn't it wasn't this next thing yet there's always something yeah. on the horizon that um that like okay that's that's nice but we haven't made it here yet i was you know mm -hmm. i just think as a leader oftentimes you can be ahead of the present you're so far ahead of the present that, that you don't learn to celebrate what's going on and and the successes you're making no that's a great point and then and again that's going into just kind of bigger picture life no matter what you're doing where you are is you gotta you gotta enjoy the moment and celebrate 
what what has happened or what you're doing right now. Not get complacent, not feel, oh, well, we're good, we've arrived or anything like that, but just to, to take the time uh, to really absorb the moments. You know, because a lot of times we look back on things and go, man, I wish I'd enjoyed it more. You know, I wish I'd spent more time in that moment. And so that's, that's great advice. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say if, because I don't have everybody's perspective. Um, but for me, it's hard to say, like, was my constantly looking forward, constantly being kind of unsatisfied because there was another level of achievement and, and always looking at that, always being hungry. Uh, was that part of the success? Like, does that, it was definitely stressful. Was that stress like trying to resolve that stress, uh, and solve that, like that problem that I basically invented that construct of a problem was that part of like the driver of success or was it just luck and all that worry didn't matter anyway? Or, <laughs> or, you know, I don't know. I don't know which is true. I don't know uh, if that, I mean, I imagine that caused me to work harder, which I imagine had some level of, of effect. Uh, but it's hard to say. It's hard to say. And it's hard to say like, well, what would have been the healthiest way? Ideally, like some mix of like, here are my goals, but also I know how to stop myself, take a time out, gather my team together and, and, and celebrate our successes. Yeah, absolutely. And there's definitely uh, some degree of balance in there that you have to find. I know early on in, in what I was doing, uh, I was working nonstop, seven days on, no days off working, you know, the entire month I'd look back, I go, oh, okay, I just worked 30 days in a row trying to launch this organization. Uh, I run a, a mission uh, organization in, in Atlanta and, there was a time that I got to a point where I had my life was just kind of messed up because I was doing so much with work and not taking any time for myself or for uh, the things that really were important. And um, so I started really having to be conscientious of taking time off and celebrating the wins and all that and being very intentional about it. And what I've found is actually I've gotten more done since I've started that mindset than I did when I was working every single day. And so it's almost counterintuitive sometimes that you have to take a step back, take the rest, take the the time you need to take care of yourself, take care of the people around you, because in the long run you're gonna you're gonna get a lot more done. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. That's that's it's about being balanced and healthy, and and fortunately, like you can read books about that, you can listen to advice about that, as as I mean, your listeners are doing right now, um, yeah. but. And that's going to, I imagine that'll help because uh, I had some of that. But um, some of it's just life experience. Some of it is just stuff that you learn all, along the way. I don't know if I still would have experienced it if I hadn't like sold and had that time of reflection. Like I've sold my company, now what? Um, right. Whether I would still kind of be trapped in my own headspace where, you know, I can't, I can't, uh, see the present for because I'm, I'm too busy looking through this looking glass of the future. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, if you're, it's one of those things that you, if you become really, really successful, whether it's in game publishing or whatever business, whatever, uh, but your family doesn't like you and your health is a wreck and you have a heart attack when you're 42 and die. Well, what was all that success really worth anyway in the end? Yeah. It's like, it's almost like we're all searching for some way to, to, to make an impression on the world and this, this crowded world that, uh, you know, we're all 
we're all sprinting towards uh, death and and everything mm-hmm. is heading in one direction time flows in one direction everything will yeah. be be washed away and reclaimed and uh and yet we as people like just have this hunger to to be seen to be known to to make something lasting yeah absolutely so what are what are some of the things you wish you had known going in before you started the company the things you you, you wish people uh had told you or you wish you'd already had some experience in like, what do you wish you'd known before you, you got into the game publishing world? I mean, if now me like could go backwards in time to where the game industry was at, where it was at when I got in, like, I just feel like I could have done so much more <laughs> right and better. Uh, obviously, but if it's like me now starting over in the way the industry currently is like, I have far less confidence. Um, so like all of my advice is with a, is with a grain of salt because I don't, like, I just don't face the same problems that somebody starting off right now faced. I faced my own problems. Um, but yeah, I couldn't say with confidence, like if I had to start it over right now, like I would totally, I would do this and this and this and it would guarantee me success. And I just don't know. Yeah. What about like just kind of general advice, whether it's working with freelancers or working with distributors, any kind of nuance things that uh, were really good uh, for you to know once you knew them, but it would have been nice to have already known them, that kind of thing. Uh, I think um, doing a good job of keeping track of, of your financials, of being able to do, to both have uh, a, and this is this is one of those no fun answers, but to to have a clear picture of, you know, where you're spending money, where you're making money, how much money you're making on a project, at what point it becomes worth it, at what point you become sustainable, just having a good grasp of what a company's lifeblood is, the money that's flowing in and out of it, and and you know, as capitalistic as that sounds, like that's just that's what makes the organization function. It's what makes a nonprofit organization function. Uh, you know, just any organization, like just to be able to do and act in this world, a lot of it is, um, you know, only so much of people's time can be volunteered. Like nobody's going to print something for you because like they want to be charitable. So, right. uh, so yeah, like being able to have a good picture of that means that you can put that money to best use you can know when your company's uh, making a healthy decision or not, uh, and and you can kind of avoid overreaching uh, or under, uh, you know, underreaching and and causing like all this demand that you don't that you can't meet. So, um, yeah, just being as knowledgeable as possible in in economics. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really the foundational thing that we're talking about is understanding why a business exists, what it, what it does, understanding the foundational things that go into that. Because most people don't, you know, most people don't go to college for business. They don't get MBAs or anything like that. And a lot of the people that are creating new companies now, what they really have is a good idea and they go to Kickstarter and it gets funded and they don't think of it as a business, but they're starting a business. They're really and truly becoming project managers and starting a business. And then you see those guys at a convention, you know, one year, but then the next year they are totally gone, totally disappeared because they didn't have any understanding of cash flow, of all these different foundational business concepts. Well, that's definitely part of it and that can definitely help. But 
for my part, some of it is just luck, like <laughs> meeting the right people at the right time, having the right people that just happen to come around you and, and, and help you, uh, you know, having a game idea that, that found its audience, having you, you know, having it be the right time to release something like that, having it be the right theme, uh, having the right person, having, having played it and, and liked it. Um, you know, there's a lot you can do to set yourself up for success, but ultimately luck plays some measure in it. Um, so, so, you know, those people who disappear, I, I mean, I feel really bad for them. I don't feel like it's all just like, well, you did a bad job, so you deserve this. Uh, to, to some extent, it's like, well, you're in a market that has a whole lot of competition. There was a whole lot less competition back in 09. Uh, it's grown so fast. And as big as our barrier of entry is for like playing games, our barrier of entry for producing games compared to something like video games is so much lower. Um, and especially with the introduction of Kickstarter, that is just, you know, that it's created this, just a lot of products on the market. And a lot of companies that are even well-established and big and making products, uh, it's hard not to look at the economics and say like, hey, every time we release a game, uh, we sell at least this many copies of it. Like, we should release a lot of games. Like, that's a path to growth for us. It makes sense. Um, and And so... And then that means there's even more stuff on the market that um, you know people are playing paying attention to. Yeah, absolutely. It's very very noisy uh, right now, and, and I don't know that that's going to change at all. Um, you know, I don't have I'm not a publisher, so I don't I don't fully understand the the whole impacts and all the the different things that having so many games. You know, I, I can't tell you how many games come out every single week, not come out but launch on Kickstarter every single week right now, which is just constantly adding more and more to the hobby. Would you say that uh, it's a lot harder to get a game published now than it was in 09 with a traditional publisher? Absolutely. Yeah. There's just a lot of people that that want to do this. And like, I, so many times when I go on and talk about this stuff, I'm like, I'm not going to be discouraging. I'm not going to be discouraging. <laughs> but I would, I would feel a little bit discouraged if I was trying to do it right now. Like for, yeah. for all the advice, um, I would never say to somebody like, don't do it. Because uh, because only you can evaluate if if this is your dream if you set yourself up well uh, if even if it's just something you have to do because you're so driven to do it right I've never tell somebody not to do it. I had I had uh, you know somebody tell me not to do it when I was getting started and that yeah. that it's just too hard to be successful uh, and I'm glad I didn't listen to their advice like it changed my life. Um, so, so I would never say that to somebody, but it it is, it is definitely, it's definitely intimidating. Um, but some people are successful just by getting out there and doing it and being a part and and being a talent, like, um, like Emerson Matsuuchi, it's a name that most people don't know in board games right now, but they will, they will know that name because, and, and, you know, I mean, his first releases, he produced, He did a company of his own. They're not going to. They're not going to compare well visually and marketing wise to some to a company with a lot more resources. Um, and they're going to be hard to get noticed because they are entering a world where there are a ton of games out there. 
But because he's talented, because he's he's hardworking, because he has his mind works in an interesting way. Like I'm working with him. I I, I know that that Tom works with him uh, on, on a number of things. RK Wonders has worked with him, uh, and, um, and and his games are more and more of his games you're going to see starting to hit the market. And and I just know that he'll start to become like a name in board games. Isaac Fegg is the same thing. Like he started off, you know, no, no resources, no reason to think like he could just jump in there and, and be successful. But like he met me, I had some of those resources. He had this talent. We worked together. Um, and, and now he's, you know, he's successful at making board games. Uh, so some of it is just, just doing it, do, doing it and defying the odds. Um, and, and Try not to have an existential crisis when things don't look like they're working out, and just keep at it to whatever degree you can, as long as you're you're continuing to to find the ways to have fun at it. Yeah, keep fighting the good fight. You know, I'm actually interviewing Emerson tomorrow for a future podcast. I, I'm yeah. really well, excited. All to your talk listeners will know his name. Uh, they're gonna know, man, because the guy <laughs> he knows what he's doing, and he makes some really good games. And uh, and I, I agree, he, his name needs to be out there more than it is. It, it will be. I know that he's got a number of games signed and in the in the process and in the works. Oh, sweet! That's awesome. Um, you know, going back to the whole being discouraged and thing. You know, I, I read a story a while back, and it was about a real estate agent who had made you know millions of dollars selling real estate and doing all this really cool high end uh, real estate stuff, and. Um, Whenever people would come talk to him about it, and they, you know, all these people that say, "Well, I want to get into real estate. I want to do what you do," every single time he would discourage them as much as much as he could. And then somebody asked him one day, "Why do you discourage people like that?" And he said, "Because the people that really want to do it aren't going to care what I say. The people that that really and truly want to get into this and do this on this high of a level, they're going to do it regardless. But the people that are just kind of interested in it, they're the ones that are going to walk away, you know, thinking, oh, I can't do it.' So, you know." talking about how people were a little bit discouraging towards you early on. Well, you were, you were going to get this done anyway because you really had the passion for it. You had the drive. You had the commitment. And I think commitment's the big thing. You weren't just interested. You were committed to it. You had a commitment level uh, that was super high. And so I think, you know, if anybody listening to this kind of interested in it, thinking about it, you're probably not going to be successful. But if you really commit to what you're passionate about, you commit to taking the time, doing whatever you got to do to – to accomplish this dream or accomplish this goal, whether it's just to be a designer or to design a whole bunch of games or be a publisher, or whatever it is, if you're really committed to it, you'll make it happen. You'll find a way. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess the reason why I say that is like, I've been on panels, been on podcasts where people, it just kind of devolves into this big di- discouragement fest over like, mm. Oh, there's so much to think about and you're not thinking about any of it. And, <laughs> and it's going to be so hard. And, and it's like, Oh, yeah. that's not really why people showed up to the podcast or to the panel uh you know like they showed up because they're interested in, in, in what you do and like i don't know I, I mean at heart i guess i feel like this stuff is is you know it's informative but it's also should be you know entertaining to some degree yeah uh and it's not very entertaining just to have all your dreams quashed <laughs> absolutely Absolutely, because the the point of it, no matter what it is, you can make it because people have made it. You know, we're we're not talking about being able to fly if you go jump off your house and fly. Well, nobody can do that, but we're talking about things that that people can do that they have done. And so, you know, take take the good and the bad, take everything with a grain of salt, and then have fun, do whatever you got to do, and then pay whatever it costs. You know, if it costs a whole bunch of time, pay that time. If it costs a whole bunch of uh, 
you know, just going on the internet and finding resources or finding other people in the community, whatever it costs you to accomplish your dreams, um, be willing to pay the cost. And, and at some point you'll be, you're going to be all right. You might not accomplish your dream the way you want to, but you're going to be okay. And at least you will have done it. You'll know beyond all doubt. So don't let people just discourage you from, from doing it. Uh, take a chance on yourself, take the risk and, and go have some fun. Yeah. The, the person who, uh, like that discouragement, like I don't fault them at all. Like, especially looking back, it was like, yeah, I mean, they were right. They, they were right. They, <laughs> yeah. they weren't wrong. Uh, right. I, I just ended up like proving them wrong in my instance. But one of the things that they said was like, oh, you, I mean, you can't make money at this. And I was like, well, that's not true. Like, I mean, Richard Garfield's a millionaire and he, <laughs> he's like, well, yeah, but that's like saying like, I'm going to start acting because, you know, Matt Damon's a good actor. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, it's exactly like that. It's like I am going to I'm I'm going to shoot to be one of the best and let's see what I do, you know. Um so yeah, if you feel like you can hang with like some of the best that are doing that or at least you have aspirations to find your way and educate yourself uh to get there, then then I said go for it. Definitely. I'm right there with you. Well, cool, man. Well, you got any other advice or any anything that uh people should know? I don't think so. I don't think so. I, think oh, I cool. spewed out a lot of advice, did a lot of navel gazing. <laughs> no, it's been good. Really appreciate having you on. I look forward to the uh, the bonus round coming up. We're going to talk about the barriers to entry in board games and how we can overcome some of those and, and just at, at least bring the other ones into the conversation and start trying to figure out what to do about those. But, Colby, really appreciate you having uh, having you on, and I uh, thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Cool. So for the bonus material, check out BoardGameDesignLab.com. You'll find all sorts of uh, resources and really cool stuff over there at the website. And, and Colby, good luck with everything you're doing, man. I'm really excited about some of the games you have in the process, uh, the games you all are working on right now, and looking forward to seeing what you all do in 2017. It's going to be an exciting year. No doubt. Cool, man. Have a good one. You too. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?